That's exactly it, actually. So the model that I adopted when uh, initially starting the project was was inspired by GDAL, in fact. So, so yes, it is a backend that I developed with the intention of it being plugged into other software. And as you mentioned, that includes um, you know desktop GIS like QGIS, um, ArcGIS, as well as scripting languages like Python and R and NIM. It's also embedded in other geospatial applications, like for example, the uh, Open LiDAR Toolbox has white box tools embedded in it. Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. My guest on the show today is John Lindsay. John is a professor in geomatics and he's also the creator of white box tools. So this is a tool set of over 500 geospatial analysis tools that John has created. Many of these tools have novel functionality that you won't find in other software and they are free to use. But before we get there, I want to say a quick thank you to our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored in part by Lightbox. So you can find Lightbox at L-I-G-H-T-B-O-X-R-E.com. And what do they do? Well, Lightbox is a data platform. And it's an authoritative source of North American real estate and location intelligence data. So you're probably wondering what kind of data are they an authoritative source of? So they have parcels, building footprints, administrative boundaries, census data, schools, demographics for neighborhoods, points of interest, school ratings, traffic volume for neighborhoods. As far as the property side of things goes, they have ownership information, loan and sales transactions, contacts and, and mailing addresses, historical aerial photography. So you can use the Lightbox platform to do your analysis in the platform itself, or there's a set of APIs that you can use to get a hold of the data that way and perhaps build your own analysis around it, or you can bulk download these, these data sets as files. If you're looking for a real estate information and technology platform, check out Lightbox. I'll put a link in the show notes to make it a little bit easier for you to find. Thanks, Lightbox. Really appreciate your support. Hi, John. Welcome to the podcast. You are a professor of geomatics and you're also the creator of something called White Box Tools. And White Box Tools is going to be the, the subject of this podcast episode. Before we get there, how did you end up as a professor of geomatics and how did you get involved in, in geospatial? Oh, well, that's a good question. I've been involved in geospatial, I guess, since my PhD. Um, I've I studied obviously in geography for my undergrad and my master's, but it was my PhD where I really started to get involved with, um, with GIS and geospatial. And uh, after that, I started working at the University of Manchester in the UK and then eventually landed here at Guelph. I, I mean, geomatics is, uh, I guess, more of a Canadian term, perhaps. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's essentially what the rest of the world might refer to as uh, GI science or uh, geoinformatics, perhaps. You said earlier that you really got involved with it during your PhD. Is that because it was just starting to sort of take off then? It was that we, we had the tools, we had the programming languages, we could start to do more with, with um, GIS, with, with geospatial science then? Oh, it's true, actually. So those were pretty early days. I mean, my PhD, not so much, but my undergrad. I remember taking GIS classes in my undergrad and it being quite a new thing. These were certainly early days, you know, um, uh, there weren't the well-established GIS programs that there are now to the same extent. Uh, of course, there was ArcGIS, there was GrassGIS, but um, you know, a lot of this stuff was quite new. By the time I started my PhD, things were starting to organize themselves in the geospatial field. This was um, you know, 2001 to 2004, 2005-ish. 
And um, you know, th these were certainly exciting times to be in the geospatial industry. Uh, you, you certainly felt like you could contribute as an individual um, and make a, make a big difference, for sure. And, and that's exactly what you did. You started contributing through something called White Box Tools. And I, that, this is the part of the conversation that I'm particularly excited about. Um, so let's start right at the basics. What is White Box Tools? So White Box Tools is a, um, geo, well, we like to describe it as a geospatial analysis platform. And I know the word platform has a lot of different meanings, but essentially when we say platform, we mean it is a package for geospatial analysis that you can embed into other software to help you build other types of applications. So as soon as someone says, says platform, you know, you're right, it has a lot of different connotations. What is a platform? Is it a web-based thing? Is it a, a desktop thing? What is a platform? I think it depends on who you are and, and, and what you've used in the past. But one thing about a platform is it, it doesn't sound like it just happened overnight. Could you give us a bit of an understanding of, of the history of white box tools before we jump into to what it is today? Sure thing. Um, so I guess the roots of white box tools dates back, as I said, to my to my PhD when I first started to get involved in, in geospatial. And um, at that point, uh, I, I started to code. It was my first experience coding. And in fact, my very first thing that I ever programmed was the Freeman 1991 flow model, like flow um, routing technique. It's a multi-directional flow routing technique that at the time was fairly innovative. And I was studying for my comprehensive exam. And so I was reading this paper and I thought, wow, this thing is laid out so clearly. I feel like I could almost implement it, never having coded anything before in my life. And I looked up at this um, milk crate. I was uh, you know, a student at the time, so milk crates were a major part of my furnishings. And it had uh, an old disk of, uh, of VB6, Visual Basic 6, in it that a professor had given me. And so I, so I took this thing and I installed it on my desktop and then started to code with it, learn how to, how to code, and I created this algorithm. I showed that to my, to my um, lab mates in my, in my research group, and they thought it was pretty impressive and asked me to add this and that. After a while, it had developed into this thing that was a full-blown GIS. And that was what I called the Terrain Analysis System, or TAS. And it was a small program. At the time, it was fairly widely used. And because I didn't really know what I was doing when I started it, it was honestly a bit of a mess internally. It didn't, wasn't organized um, in, a, in optimal ways to be a full-blown GIS. It just sort of evolved that way. And so by about 2008, uh, five, I guess. Well, sorry, about 2006, I was starting to question whether or not I should carry on this way. And TAS was a, f a freeware package, but everyone wanted me to make it open source. But admittedly, I was a little embarrassed about the source code because of how poorly organized it was. So by about 2008, when I arrived at the University of Guelph, I decided it was time to, to redo this thing, to, to start a new project based on the roots of TAS. And that was uh, white box uh, GAT, white box geospatial analysis tools, which again was probably my my best attempt at making a, a full blown desktop GIS. And um, you know, I developed it from the outset to be that. And uh, I, I worked on that for a, a number of years up until about 2017, when I started to get frustrated in part because I developed it using the Java programming language. Uh, and the front end was developed using the Swing library that was baked into Java. At that point, Java had abandoned Swing in favor of other other uh, 
things. And so I knew I was going to have to rewrite it. And combined at that time, I realized that a lot of people were asking me um, or, or you know, giving me feedback about Whitebox GAT that uh, they really liked the uh, tool set that came with it. And they wanted to be able to use those tools, say, outside of the front end, which because of the way that it was designed, that was not really possible. And so around, well, the end of 2017, I guess, December of 2017, I decided, all right, it's time for me to to start afresh and this time focus mainly on fleshing out the tool set that Whitebox.cat had uh, as a separate standalone thing and um, and not not to focus on the front end and instead to create something that could be easily plugged into other front ends that were, were you know, GIS projects that were quite successful at that point, like QGIS. And so that's where Whitebox Tools came in. And I developed Whitebox Tools essentially as uh, in concept, taking the tool set of Whitebox GAT and making them so that they're portable and can be embedded easily in other software applications. And so I think it was about 2018 that uh, Whitebox Tools had its first release, public release. And uh, since then, the project's been growing exponentially. So I just want to start off by pointing out that a lot of people, when they start out programming, they start out with something called Hello World and, and not writing a a flow model. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that sounds remarkable that, that that was your starting point for, for this. So you talked about tools. You moved away from the desktop to these more sort of modular kind of tools that you were talking about. How many tools are we talking about here? So the open core of Whitebox tools has, I think, around 465 tools at the moment. And the extension products that, that we sell for um, generating revenue to support the platform has, I think, at the moment, about 63 tools. So all told there's about 530 some tools um you know again i'm always working with the development version and there's always more tools in that than there is in the public releases but that's about what we're standing at at the moment and they're all developed using a programming language called rust when i when i decided to redevelop this tool set i decided that i wanted to use a sort of low level systems programming language in order to ensure that they're as fast as possible um, and consume as little memory as possible and so that, that brought me to, um, to the Rust programming language. So you might have already mentioned this, but I just want to clarify again, if you have talked about it before, is this open source? Can I get in and see the source code and pull it apart and work on it myself? Yeah, so Whitebox GAT was open source and so too is Whitebox Tools. And again, there's two parts to Whitebox Tools. So there's the foundation that we call the Whitebox Tools Open Core, and it is fully open source. You can go on GitHub and take a look at the code. And in fact, the, the term white box, the notion of it is to take to take the idea or concept of open source software and to make it um, even more so. So I, I talk about this distinguishing characteristic between open access software and open source software and, and open uh, rather white box tools is, is really more of the former. So the notion of open access is to remove barriers for the people who are using the software to be able to examine, to inspect, to understand the source code itself. So not all of the front ends have this for Whitebox tools, but for all of the open core tools, um, in some of the front ends, there's a little view code button that you can press and it'll bring you to in the, you know, whatever it is now, half a million, 750,000 lines of code, of Rust code, it'll bring you to the specific section that correspond to um, you know, the tool that you're interested in. So we, we talked about this being a platform, we talked about being modular but before, and during a previous conversation, you described it as a backend that is intended to be plugged into many front ends. Uh, when I go to the white box, uh, website, I see that there's an integration with Python, with R, with QGIS, with, with ArcGIS. Um, what, 
what am I missing here in terms of integrations here? And, and are we talking about something like in the same way that, that GDAL is a, a back end to a lot of different front ends? That's exactly it, actually. So the model that I adopted when uh, initially starting the project was was inspired by GDAL, in fact. So, so yes, it is a back end that I developed with the intention of it being plugged into other software. And as you mentioned, that includes um, you know, desktop GIS like QGIS, um, ArcGIS, as well as scripting languages like Python and R and NIM. And it's also embedded in other geospatial applications, like for example, the uh, Open LiDAR Toolbox has white box tools embedded in it. I think GMAP has it, um, and of course LeafMap, its analytical um, engine is, is in fact white box tools. So there's a number of applications out there that use white box tools to provide the analytical power that, that they offer. And I'm assuming here that these, these white box tools, they have standard inputs and standard outputs, meaning that I could chain it together with something that I'm already using, that I don't have to use exclusively white box tools and, and then go over and run the rest of a process in, in GDAL, for example. Yeah, and that speaks again to the inspiration for the project in the first place. So a lot of people were providing me feedback with Whitebox Gap that they really loved using some specific tool, you know, like maybe the depression breaching algorithm that isn't available in other types of GIS. Uh, but they wanted to be able to integrate that into their larger workflow that involved other geospatial um, packages. And, and of course, they couldn't do that with Whitebox Gap. So with Whitebox Tools, I've designed it in a way where you can easily integrate it into, say, a Python script that also calls GDAL, that also calls ArcPy, perhaps, and, and, and other types of uh, geospatial libraries. So with some of these open source tools, there's a whole bunch of dependencies. And it can, it can be non-trivial to figure out how I'm going to make this thing work, even though a lot of the times the documentation is amazing. For people like me, you know, I can feel a bit lost in it sometimes. I need a certain version of, of Python. Maybe I need a certain version of, of GDAL. Maybe I need some other things around there. Is this also the case with white box tools? No. So, so I mean, you're speaking to something that is very dear to my heart, I would say. Um, I've had similar experiences where in using certain uh, geospatial software, and I won't name names here, uh, you know, it's extremely daunting when you go to install it and you realize that you have about, you know, 40 prerequisites that need to be installed in a specific order before you can actually use that software. And that is something that has always strongly bothered me about, um, you know, the geospatial industry in particular. And so in developing white box tools, the idea was always to make it so that there are zero dependencies. And that has come a, a cost in terms of, uh, you know, being a, a guiding design principle. There are certain compromises that need to be made as a result of that. But essentially, in truth, Whitebox Tools is just a standalone executable that you can download for your platform on our webpage, and it runs as soon as you download it. Like you, you can start to, to use it without having to install anything else. That's because there are no dependencies. And the reason for that is because I've actually coded everything in the stack. Whitebox Tools, for example, doesn't use GDAL for input output. Instead, I've coded all of the all of the um, components of it that that read and write different uh, formats of geospatial data. All, all of the stuff between the sort of low level and the high level tools that you're using uh, exist in the same stack, and that's why there are no dependencies. I mean, uh, that is kind of amazing in itself. So a lot of uh... 
I think a lot of the development that, that I've definitely seen, they've taken things that are already working. So they haven't reinvented the wheel. And, of course, that can be understood with, with some negative con- connotations when you think about the, the work that you've done. But I, th- I think you've done a great job of sort of explaining why you've done it like that. So, But these other projects, they haven't done that. They've just, oh, GDAL's working really great. I'll have that. Uh, I'll take this other thing. It's already working, and, and I'll build it on top of that thing there. Um, is there any... Uh, I can see the pros and cons of, of each model, but I, I think... What does that mean in terms of robustness, I guess is my question. And, and this could be understood in different ways. Robustness in terms of maintenance. So I'm assuming that the GDAL people are doing an amazing job of, uh, of doing that. I don't need to worry about it. And if GDAL updates, then I get the benefit of that as well. But I guess this is not the case with, with what you're building with, with white box tools. Well, so uh, again, that's a truly excellent question. But I think white boxes design philosophy is perhaps different than, than many other things, and this being one of the major differences. In terms of robustness specifically, though, I would argue that while it's true, you know, there are, there's a lot to be gained, and certainly I, I wouldn't suggest that everyone adopt the model that I have here. It's very specific to, to this project and to, to you know, my personality as a developer, I suppose. But there's also um, problems with robustness that comes from adopting an approach where you have essentially cobbled together several existing libraries. And I think we've all experienced that, where you update one library and all of a sudden other pieces of the stack fall apart. And that doesn't happen with white box tools because sort of like sort of like Apple with the Mac you know they've designed hardware that is intended to run certain software and as a result you know the fact that uh, everything down that stack is designed to communicate with one another the whole thing works somewhat seamlessly and I'd say it's the same for white box tools you know if if um, uh, I relied on a library for doing certain sort of lower level parts of the stack and then update that library. There can be knock-on effects that I don't fully understand as the developer because I don't necessarily have the understanding of how that lower level library works and how it communicates with the other pieces. And that doesn't happen with white box tools because essentially I have a full vision of everything from the top end to the bottom end. And as you said, there are definitely compromises. This is not something I would recommend everyone doing by any means. And obviously it's it's a bit crazy, frankly, to, to try to do something at this scale. But um, there are there are advantages as, as well as disadvantages, I suppose. I really appreciate you taking the time to sort of, sort of talk about that a little bit. And I hope you understand none of what I said was, was meant as a critique. It's just I'm, I'm merely trying to highlight, oh, this is another way of doing things. And so hopefully people will go away with the idea, okay, there, there are pros and cons to, to both ways of, of developing tools. Absolutely. And, and no, I definitely don't take it as a, as a critique by any means. It is a very different way at developing software compared to what most people would would do by any means and it's almost counter to sort of the modern approach to to developing software and again i think this perhaps speaks to the fact that i've been doing this for 20 odd years and when i initially started doing this many of these existing projects just didn't exist or or were pretty rudimentary gdal i don't even remember GDAL when I first started developing software. QGIS was a completely different thing. People often said to me, you know, why why did you develop your own desktop GIS when I was working on GAT when there is QGIS? Well, QGIS was not what it is today when I started developing. So I, I think in part that's, that's where it comes from. So I think we've probably beaten around the bush enough. <laughs> we've talked about you know, where the, this tool set came from. We've talked about some of the um, development 
fundamentals around it, how it was designed, and and the thinking behind that design. Um, let, let's talk a little bit about what we get, like what what's in the box when when we downloaded this thing. So if I go to your website again, whiteboxgeo.com, uh, it looks like you've got a, a really great set of manuals of documentation here. And I'm looking at something. I'm on a web page called Tools Reference, and I see things like data tools. Uh, geomorphic analysis, GIS analysis, image analysis, LIDAR analysis, precision agriculture. C- can you talk us through some of these things? What, what, do, what do I find in LIDAR analysis, for example? Sure. So um, White Box Tools has, uh, you know, pe- people often say, well, what can I use it for? And I always respond that that's a challenging thing to answer because it's a little like saying, what can I use ArcGIS for? Or what can I use QGIS for? You know, it, it obviously goes... Um, to solving spatial problems generally, but there are areas that it has particular strength in. And so, you know, you speak about the LiDAR toolbox or the uh, collection of tools in Whitebox tools that are geared towards LiDAR data processing. Those are, are all tools that are intended to take the typical LiDAR analyst from a raw point cloud all the way to, say, an interpolated digital elevation model. So there are tools that are intended to work specifically with LiDAR data and LiDAR point clouds. So for example, there are a number of interpolation routines, things like, you know, tinning or triangulation and um, IDW, inverse distance weighted interpolation, splining, that type of thing. But unlike generic, say, IDW interpolation tools that you might find in other GIS software, these are specifically geared to, um, to LiDAR data. So, for example, you can interpolate only first returns or last returns. You can interpolate only points that have a certain class. You can use in your or exclude in your interpolation points that have been marked as being noisy points, either high or low lying points. Um, so these are essentially a collection of tools that help the LiDAR specialist to, to take raw data and extract information products from them. So I, I, I'm hoping people have a really good understanding of what white box tools is now, but I, I think if they don't, if they've still got a few questions in their mind, perhaps we, we could, perhaps you could give us some examples of, of use cases and examples of, of where people are using them, how they're using them, and, and hopefully this will sort of get people's imaginations going, help them understand, well, how can I use this? Yeah, so I get a lot of feedback from from users currently in terms of the wonderful ways in which they're applying it, many of which, again, are ways that I've sort of intended them to be used and some of which are are definitely ways that I I hadn't anticipated. But some of the feedback that we get certainly would be things like uh, wetland mapping projects. It's it's fairly widely applied in because of some of the the tools that are are well designed for that. Geological resource inventorying is um, something that, that we've seen it applied in, for example, uh, creating information products for the entirety of the Australian continent uh, using supercomputer, um, modeling the distribution of solar radiation in an urban setting in order to identify potential houses in which you could install photovoltaic solar panels. Uh, I've seen I've seen that sort of application a couple of times now. Uh, digital archaeology, as I had mentioned before, is is a uh, an area that, that people are applying the tool set in quite widely these days. Um, again, Guelph is an agricultural university, and so I see it very widely applied in soils mapping applications. Um, recently, landslide modeling, a lot of geomorphological modeling applications for sure. It's applied in forestry applications, and that's again particularly because of its strength in LiDAR data processing. It's 
um, always because of my own research area been applied very strongly in, in for sort of a digital elevation model or DEM pre-processing, particularly in applications of spatial hydrology. And that again sort of speaks to, to my area of expertise in research. And really it's applied um, more than that in, in all kinds of applications perhaps that I don't even know about because uh, you know perhaps people haven't reached out to me. So I would definitely encourage people out there perhaps listening to this podcast who who have been applying it in ways that perhaps I haven't talked about today um, that, that they think I might be interested in reaching out and letting us know. We really we really love to have our, our these tools. So I think I mentioned this before, but something like, so you've got a group of tools that come under the, the heading of precision agriculture. How do you decide what, what tools to build? Are you looking around and seeing, well, what's available out there already and then looking for you know, a gap in the market, as it were? Or, or how, do you, how do you know which tools to make? Is it people asking for certain things or is it through your own work? It's a combination of things, really. So, so I would say one, it's based on my research. So areas of strength, like say lidar or geomorphometric analysis or spatial hydrology or stream network analysis, a lot of that comes out of my research needs. So in in my own research as a professor, I focus on certain areas of geomatics, and and so obviously I'm going to develop tools that I need. Um, you know, it's kind of strange, but when you develop your own GIS, it, it's there's a certain feeling of discomfort when you have to go out to other GIS to use their abilities. So whenever that happens effectively, then I'll, I'll write a tool so that I don't have to do that. Um, you know, my um, research when it involves sort of creating cutting edge uh, algorithms for doing certain types of processes, Whitebox is the platform in which I, I disseminate that knowledge about some innovative algorithm, for example. There's also an element of receiving feedback from users. So for example, that precision agriculture set of tools, a lot of that comes from me working at the University of Guelph, which is an agricultural-based university. It has real strengths in, in agricultural research. And uh, a lot of the people that I work with are frustrated when they deal with the geospatial data that they work with most intimately, which is crop yield data. And it's very noisy. You know, we have these wonderful combines that, that um, uh, can be used to extract uh, spatial information about about the amount of crop that is removed from various parts of the field, but it comes off very, very noisy. And so that set of tools, for example, can be used to, to help using, to, to use geospatial techniques in order to clean that data and make it uh, more readily available as an information product. And then there's an element of teaching. Again, the other aspect of me being a professor is that I do research, but I also teach. And... Um, you know, we talked about this in a previous conversation, but I very much consider myself to be a geospatial tinkerer at the sort of concept of the guy who has to take apart the toaster. If I'm teaching some concept to an undergrad GIS class or an undergrad remote sensing class, I need to know how that, that you know, algorithm, how that process works at a very fundamental level. And for me, that means, that means coding it. If I can't write a tool to... Um, you know, do a, uh, a canny edge detection um, uh, process on, on a satellite image, then, then I, I don't know that I should be teaching that. If I can't write a tool to perform, a, you know, a, a network analysis operation, then I'm not sure that I should be teaching that to an undergrad class. And um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't cast that uh, judgment on any other professor but myself here. I should say that it's just, it's just my nature. I really need to understand how things work at the most fundamental basic level to have confidence enough to be able to teach it. And, um, and so that's, that's where 
I'd say most of the inspiration comes from. And some of it is honestly just requests from users who say, I've got this problem, I'd like to figure out how to do this. Um, and sometimes they're direct, oftentimes they're direct, well, they'll, they'll email me and say, oh, I'd like, I'd like to be able to do this with your tool set and it's not yet available. Do you have any idea if you'd be able to do that? Sometimes it's indirect where, I won't lie, I spend some time scouring uh, GIS Stack Exchange when I'm trying to procrastinate and oftentimes really interesting problems come up there and I think, oh, I, I could have a solution for How many times would you have to hear a user say, look, I, I really need to be able to do this before you would sort of consider building that tool? That's a really good question. So it's true, if I hear multiple users requesting the same feature, then obviously it bumps up the priority queue for me. Uh, and at the same time, if it's just a single request, but it's a really interesting spatial problem that I've not thought about before, or that I can think of a unique solution for, then um, you know, even with one request, it may well result in a tool. And sometimes that happens. Sometimes someone will email me in the morning or I wake up in the morning, check my email and they'll be like, you know, I've got this problem. I, I can't see a solution for it. Can you think of anything? And like by afternoon, I'll have a tool written that I can send to them. And that eventually will be published in the, in the open core as uh, you know, something that everyone else can use. And so that's why sometimes when you look at the tool set, you'll see like really niche tools. Some of them, you know, many of them are obviously perhaps generic tools that you might find in other GIS, but some of them are really specific tools. And oftentimes that's inspired by a very specific need of some user. And um, I, I am often, well, more often than not surprised when, uh, you know, I'll write one of these very specific tools for a very specific intention and then find out years later that, you know, many people have been using this tool and, and that uh, it's benefited many others. That's what makes it all worthwhile, I guess. So the, again, I, I am not a developer, so this might come across as a very naive question, but w what if the request was, I'd like to run these in a different environment, like a, a high performance computing environment, for example, or on a, a cell phone or, or something else? Is that something that is possible to do with these tools today or, or could it be a, a future for some of them? It sure is. So there are people who have um, definitely uh, used white box tools on supercomputers. Um, I can think of at least two or three examples where that's the case. It can be used in, in the, you know, Google Earth Engine uh, GE type environment. It can be used sort of uh, in, in web-based environments. The only thing that I haven't seen it used in currently, and this is, I think, in part just because I've not compiled it for this, is, is a, like a mobile environment. So there's no reason why technically it couldn't be used in a mobile environment. Again, the Rust programming language can certainly be compiled for, say, Android. Uh, no doubt I could get it on iOS. It's just I've not I've not um, compiled it for such, and and no one in the community has done so. I don't know if it's because the guts or the intention of Whitebox is obviously more on the analytical side than the visualization side. And I might be misspeaking here, but I think mobile GIS is still much more focused on front-end data visualization for people in the field than it is, you know, raw data analysis, um, which typically you would still go to, I wouldn't say a more powerful computing platform, but certainly one that is maybe more conducive to, to interacting with, you know, analysis. Yeah, I think that's a really fair statement. Um, but you mentioned the word intention, and it made me think that when I look through this list of tools that, that you've developed, they're so focused, so unique, and there seems to be a very clear intention behind like that. This is for exactly that thing there. I'm wondering if you can have situations where you f see people using your tool for something that it wasn't intended for. And how do, how do you feel about that? How do you react to that? Or do, does it matter? I do. Uh, well, so 
it doesn't matter. I want people to use it for whatever they want to use it for. I've created a set of tools here and, you know, unleashed them on the world with the hope that people will apply them in ways that I didn't ever think that they would be applied. And I get a lot of inspiration and motivation when people do contact me and say, oh, you know, I was using this tool for this application that I, it was something I never envisioned. And a good example of that is um, in recent years or recent months, uh, it's been fairly widely applied for geoarchaeology, for digital archaeology applications. And, you know, people have reached out to me to say, oh, we're, we're using it for, you know, this, this, and this type of archaeological-based application. And I won't lie, in developing these tools, it's not something I was really envisioning. So, so seeing people applying them in ways and, and in domains that I, I never anticipated is, is truly motivating. You know, the capacity for users to take what you've created and to, you know, apply them in ways that, that I myself could never have envisioned is, is remarkable. So earlier on, we, we talked about how this is a back-end design for many front-ends. How, how did you decide which front-ends to support? I'm assuming that there's a certain amount of support that goes into each, or maintenance involved with each front-end as ArcGIS changes, perhaps as QGIS changes, as, as Python changes. There must be some level of maintenance that, that, is, that is required there. Um, so, so how do you decide which front-ends to support? Uh, I think if you speak to any open source developer of a large project, you will hear about the balance that has to exist in order to not burn out. And, you know, obviously developing 530 plus tools in the span of um, three or four years, it, it's been a marathon run at a, at a sprint's pace for me. And, um, you know, you can only spread yourself thin so much. And so my focus has really almost entirely been at the back end side of things. So many of the front ends that we've talked about are actually maintained by other people in the user community, in particular Quisheng Wu, a professor in uh, Tennessee at, in the United States. He has uh, taken strides in, in pushing, I think, the ArcGIS front end, um, some of the, the Python, although a white box comes with its own Python API uh, already, but there's a, a pip install that he maintains. And I think he started the R front end, who's, which is now being maintained by another, another fellow, uh, Andrew. And um, the QGIS front end was initially maintained and still is maintained by uh, Alex Brewery in, in the Ukraine as a result of some of the unfortunate things obviously going on in the Ukraine at the moment, not to get too political. He's had to step back from that. And so Whitebox Geospatial, the company has sort of taken taken over, at least for now, the, the maintenance of that particular front end. But otherwise, I try not to guide where people where people create the front ends that users can can um, interact with the project and focus instead much more on the back end. I kind of prefer to tell you the truth being the anonymous anonymous guy in the background <laughs> working on things without people perhaps knowing that, that he's there. <laughs> this uh, podcast is quite unnatural for me. It's probably one of the first um, uh, public facing things that I've done. Well, I have to say, I think you're doing an amazing job at, 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 at being a guest and slowly but surely sort of walking us through this. I really appreciate it. So we talk, we're talking about these tools. We've talked about some of your thinking around the develop of, uh, development of them. I, I want to go back to something you said earlier on. Uh, you talked about the development being driven by your own work, by, by the research that you're doing and your need and desire to, to teach these skills to the students that you're working with. 
And I remember from a previous conversation, you were talking about this idea of turning science into practice. So taking the science that you're doing and making something tangible out of it, a tool that could be applied in the real world. And I, I wonder if you see that this sort of move towards re, reproducible research as a move towards turning science in, into practice and help sort of getting the science out the door, getting it in the hands of, of, of people that, that might do amazing things with it. Yeah, so again, you're speaking to something that is very near and dear to my heart. Um, you know, as a scientist, I frequently see, and again, I don't want to, I don't want to criticize any individuals, but I frequently see geospatial scientists, academics, who, um, you know, are working at the cutting edge of the field, developing innovative solutions to geospatial problems that practitioners experience on a day-to-day -day basis. And oftentimes, the result of that research is the publication of a journal article, which other academics can access, but frequently. Uh, practitioners don't necessarily have access to, and even if they did, they don't necessarily have access to the to the software artifacts that implement the ideas contained in those in those published papers. You know, oftentimes academics will publish a little GitHub repo containing that implementation, but it's very specific to the to the application that the the journal article uh, you know was based on, and isn't as easily transcribed into practice. Um, so for me. Whitebox Tools isn't just a, you know, a, a side project. For me, it's very intimately tied to my research as the means by which I can communicate not to other academics the solutions to, you know, innovative solutions to problems that, that I'm working with at the sort of cutting edge of my particular field of research, but also to then communicate those ideas in the form of a, of a usable implementation to practitioners. And that allows me a certain advantage in truth in terms of my field, because immediately if I develop, say, a new um, uh, depression breaching algorithm to better pre-process digital elevation models, well, within days I can ensure that it's in the hands of practitioners such that they can adopt this you know, cutting edge um, scientific advancement effectively. And um, so I've always viewed white box tools as effectively a form of disseminating the research that I'm doing and that the students that I work with, grad, grad students in my research group, it's the vehicle by which they can also uh, get the work that they're doing in the hands of practitioners. And sometimes that honestly um, freaks them out. Uh, my grad students often are working on, as all academics are, on these very niche problems. And as you spend two years focused on this one little problem, you think, oh, does anyone in the world care about this problem? It's one of the side effects of doing a grad degree, I'm afraid. And there's always a point in each of their degree programs where uh, when we get close to the, or when we get to the point where we publish the tool that they're working on in the, the white box uh, geospatial tool set, and you know they'll get an email out of the blue, or I'll get an email out of the blue from some user somewhere around the world uh, who will say, "Oh, you know, I just started using this tool. It's wonderful. Can you give me some advice about, say, parameterizing it?" And it always just takes them by surprise, knowing that something that they thought was so niche and they were so focused on is now being used by people, you know, potentially thousands and thousands of people in hundreds of different countries, hundred plus countries. I, I could imagine that the, you would feel like you were on the hook in, in a different way. So you're not just publishing a, a journal article about this, like you're providing a tool, a service, and you, your name is attached to that tool or service. I, I could imagine that responsibility would weigh quite heavily on, on some of these younger students. Um, uh, uh, we, we've talked about this white box tools as being a platform. Right at the start, we said platform, and we, you know, platform could be a lot of different things. Is there a world where this is a distribution platform? 
of tools where well it, it is already but is, is there a world where other professors come to you and say look I've made this thing can you add it to your tool set and can we can we distribute the knowledge as a practical thing in the platform that you've already built yeah I mean when I talked about the notion of you know the term white box indicating open access as opposed to open source software again one of the ideas or the inspirations there or the hopes I suppose of, of that was that uh, by removing the barriers to understanding how certain tools work, it allows for iterating on those tools. It makes it much easier for people to say, oh, okay, this is how, say, the slope tool works. I could modify that to improve it to, to do this or that. And then to very easily, you know, take uh, user user community contributions and, and to build on it in that way. Uh, it was quite idealistic and optimistic in that sense. And to some extent, that worked well with Whitebox GAT when it was written in Java. Um, with white box tools, again, certain compromises needed to be made, and I chose the Rust programming language because of its performance characteristics and the fact that it's a modern language. But it is admittedly one of the toughest languages to learn as a beginner. So if you haven't learned Rust previously, that journey of learning it is probably harder than it would be certainly for, say, Python or for Java, more common languages like that. And so up until now, effectively those 530 some tools have been contributions by myself largely, and a few of them have been by, by my graduate students as well. Um, but I haven't as of yet received very many contributions from, from the community. But again, with the concept of white box, that it's very much designed with this sort of goal in mind. Yeah. Have you heard of people um, doing what you're talking about? So opening a tool up, seeing you know, what's under the hood, how it works, and porting that to another language? Yeah, so so I, I think I had mentioned to you that Whitebox GAT was initially, so it was developed in Java, but but in reality it was initially developed in the .NET platform um, using a combination of both Visual Basic.NET and C Sharp. And um, the nice thing about the .NET platform was that when you press that view code button and you, you saw the code that I wrote, if you didn't understand, say, C-sharp, then you could convert it to, say, Python, like just press a button and it would, would convert it. So there was a ready ability to be able to translate the toolset from one to another. And in fact, when I left the Whitebox GAT project, there was another um, hydrological project that um, uh, GIS project that took that tool set and translated them into, I forget what language they, they translated into, but that that was that was something that happened then. Certainly, you know, there's there's definitely the ability to do that. I think that there would, I think it's a little trickier to do than you might think though. Again, because those tools have been written in Rust, but they also use all of the stack that lies below the analytical part of the tool in terms of reading and writing data and everything else that goes in between. So you'd need to port all of that over as well. It's no easy undertaking. At this point, Whitebox GAT, it's been a while since I've done sort of the lines count, but it's, it's you know, coming in, I imagine, on, on close to a million lines of code. It's probably about somewhere between 500 and 750,000 lines of code. So it's a... It's a sizable project to pour it. <laughs> yeah, it, it sounds like it. It sounds like an incredible undertaking. So, so what would you, if you had to start this again today, what what would you do differently in terms of your, your approach to building and, and maintaining this? Well, so this is my third kick at the can, admittedly. So, so um, you know, I, I made mistakes with TAS. I made mistakes with, with Whitebox GAT. On this one, I'm not going to say it's perfect by any means, but it is definitely the closest that I've come to creating exactly what was in my mind from the inception of the project. So 
I don't know, things that I would change about it. Um, I have, I would say that there are compromises that I have made for the design philosophy of white box tools and those compromises, of course, as everything does come with um, certain side effects. And, you know, uh, the side effects are ones that I'm okay with, but uh, there are, there are maybe consequences for, for other um, applications, other users. And so, you know, I could certainly see designing it in a different way in order to capture different audiences for sure. And to some extent, we're addressing some of those issues now in terms of the company and our, our recent development efforts. Some exciting things coming down the pipeline, for sure. I, I think that's a, that's a really um, hard thing to know. It's like, who, who is this for? I think it's obviously a really important question. But an equally important question is, who is it not for? You know, because I think if you're for everyone, effectively you're for no one. It doesn't differentiate itself in the market. You're aiming at that, that big sort of the, the middle of the bell curve and I, I think you can very quickly end up making average stuff for average people and, and no one cares about average stuff. They care about specific things for, for their problems. I mean, this is the problem that I have when people ask me, what is Whitebox for? And I, you know, I reply and say, well, what is ArcGIS for? What is QGIS for? Because it, it is so broad in its scope. And I do definitely encounter this problem. You know, in, again, as a, as a researcher, I'll frequently see people uh, say write a paper describing some software for a very niche problem that they've that they've been working on and it's very easily publishable you can very easily say here's the tagline this is this is you know innovation in this particular field but white box tools paint such a broad stroke uh, covering such large ground that admittedly like i know i need to write the white box tools journal article so people have things to cite but it's a hard one to publish because uh, in order to do so, I have to sort of break it down to here are the niche areas that it has strength in. But the reality is in doing that, you're always sort of leaving out some of the more perhaps generic um, functionality that it has because it is it is intended to be so broad in application. And from the user community perspective, that means that, uh, you know, it's hard to describe the value proposition in sort of a pithy single line thing. It can be used for everything. Um, uh, you know, that's probably an overstatement, obviously. There are things that it's not particularly strong in and things that it's, it's much stronger in. But it does, compared to most projects, have a, a much broader uh, sort of application area. And so that value proposition is certainly there. And it's there in the, I think, maybe some of the unique tools that it offers that you won't find in other GIS. So while it has a set of tools that definitely overlap with things that you would find in QGIS and in ArcGIS, it also has a large number of tools that are very niche that I, I think aren't niche in their application, broad application, but are niche in their solution that offer certain advantages that you won't find in other things. Um, but that's hard to to say to people in sort of a pithy one-line way. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it, it's not easy. But I love that sentence there. Not niche in terms of their application, but niche in terms of their solution. I, I thought that that was brilliant. That was a great one-liner. <laughs> Maybe I need to write that one. We should put that one on the webpage. Yeah, I, I think you should. Hey, um, <laughs> so this has been fantastic. I, I've learned a bunch. I really appreciate you sort of walking, up, walking us through this. What should people do? They, they have heard us talk about white box tools for a while now. Where can they go if they want to learn about this thing? Is there any particular uh, website we can send them to or a place on the website where it's, it's just a great starting point? I'm guessing there's people sitting out there thinking, well, I love tools. I like working with geospatial data. What, what should they do to discover if white box tools is for them? 
That's a good question. So of course the home on the web for us is, is um, www.whiteboxgeo.com. And um, that's our homepage now uh, since about a year ago. And uh, you will find all the information that you could ever want to know about the White Box Tools project in terms of the, the larger White Box platform, in terms of the open core that we've been talking about today, as well as the extension projects, our products that, that um, you know, extend the functionality of that. And of course, you will find plenty of, of uh, resource information in terms of the user manual that we have put. We have put so much work into that user manual to, to give users uh, a source for, for answering the questions that they have about how to work with some of these niche tools and parameterize them and the inputs and outputs um, and you know what they do and how they can be used and applied. And we have a series of um, uh, YouTube videos. So my business partner, Anthony, uh, he's a reluctant YouTube star, I would say. <laughs> Uh, but he's been releasing at a pretty steady pace uh, YouTube tutorials that, that describe perhaps individual tools or collections of tools and how they can be used. Um, and of course, you can find us on Twitter and uh, LinkedIn and, and other social media. Well, I'll put links to all of those places in the show notes of, of this episode. So I hope that helps people discover you. And I, I just want to say thanks. Like, thank you very much for, for building this and, and making it available for people and for helping sort of spread the word about geospatial and helping people you know, solve niche problems uh, on behalf of the community. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel. It really was a, an honor and a privilege for me to, uh, to speak to you today on, on your podcast, you know, long-term fan and, um, and what you're doing is remarkable for the geospatial community and, you know, the opportunity for us to, to um, uh, perhaps get people in the user community who are less familiar or, or unfamiliar with white box tools out there. Um, and knowing more about it is, is certainly an opportunity that made me come out of my sort of back-end shell, my uh, natural reclusive nature, and, uh, and to join you today. I really appreciate that. Well, I'm really pleased you did. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been great talking with you. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks again to Lightbox for sponsoring this podcast episode. If you are in the US or Canada and want to locate your customers and prospects using addresses, geocoding, and property information, or if you're working in real estate, government, telecommunications, insurance, energy, or utilities, check out Lightbox. That's L-I-G-H-T-B-O-X-R-E.com. And there'll be a link in the show notes of this episode to make it easier for you to find. Thanks, Lightbox. Really appreciate your support. So I really hope you enjoyed that episode with John Lindsay talking about Whitebox tools. Now, I realize when you publish an episode about white box tools and you have a sponsor that is called Lightbox. It could be a little bit confusing, but just to clarify, Lightbox is the sponsor of this podcast episode and the tools that John Lindsay was talking about can be found at whiteboxgeo.com. I'll put links to, to the sponsor and to the Whitebox tools website in the show notes of this episode to make it really easy for, for you to find. So that's it for another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in again this week. I really appreciate it. As always, the, you're more than welcome to reach out to me. Perhaps the best way of getting a hold of me is to visit mapscaping.com. You'll find a bunch of other podcasts there, um, some pretty amazing blog posts, and some contact information. And I would love to hear from you. Okay, that's it from me. All talk again next week. Bye.